and unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show in Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey, VJ. How are you feeling today? Hey, doing well, doing well. Thank you. Good, good, good. All right. So today our special guest is Stephanie Kaler. Uh, they are a PhD student in feminist studies at UC Santa Barbara and reviews editor at Glass, a journal of poetry. They are founder of Sex Workers Archival Project, a primary source share. Um, her most recent and forthcoming work can be found in publications including Flypaper Lit, Violet, uh, Indigo Blue, etc., and uh, Bee Stung. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, also to put it out there, in a few minutes, uh, we'll, we'll first we'll settle in, we'll get a sense of you, but uh, first in a few minutes, we'll expecting call-ins if people want to uh, speak with her, speak with Stephanie, speak with us, talk a little bit about uh, the, the topics we're talking about. So, I'll put out the call-out number in a few minutes, but for now, we'll settle in with uh, giving giving a little bit of your background, a little bit of your um, studies and, and the PhD in uh, in feminist studies, and tell us a little bit about your dissertation working that you're working on. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yes, as you mentioned, and I appreciate the introduction. I'm currently working on a PhD at UC Santa Barbara. Um, I'm based here in New York, and doing a lot of work on New York City history in particular, um, related to sex work and workers' rights and precarious labor a little bit more generally. Um, a lot of times in our, you have this like very um, kind of simplified narrative of like sex workers history from late 1800s to the present day. And it's been helpful for a number of reasons, but I found that we kind of jump ahead at some points to where we go from when prostitution law originated and there was really a huge scare in the late 19th century to the early 20th century about this idea of white slavery. Um, these innocent little white girls are going to be pulling away and taken into this horrible trade. And that really wasn't the dynamic that was going on so much. You know, there were working women as their have been for a while working men too they weren't all white um but this was at the time of the great migration and increased immigration and the underpinnings of xenophobia and racism were really just kind of the hallmarks of this campaign like save the white woman from the men of color Meanwhile, arresting the women of color who were working and kind of turning a blind eye to um, white workers with white clients. So this went on, um, fizzled out mostly by like 1930-ish, even though there were still people putting out the very like religious right-wing um, pamphlets. And then we kind of moved ahead and we're like, and then in 1965, and, you know, there was a lot of organizing around then, too. Carol Lee, um, who's still with us today, and thank you, Carol. She came up with the term sex work, um, and it's an organizing principle in the late 1970s. Reds, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, um, you know, that, like, really kind of grimy but romantic history of Times Square. We have that. 
But it's like, well, what's going on? You know, there's a really big chunk. We're kind of skipping over right there. And, you know, it's not like that was a time when not a lot was going on politically. I mean, like, Great Depression, World War II. Um, so I'm interested in both well, what was going on then and to how they kind of like elided our narratives of work um, and workers and workers' rights and organizing. So that has been what I've been keeping busy with lately. Right, right. Now, uh, this is mainly focused, I guess, uh, in sex work in New York, you're saying. Is there any influence that uh, internationally that, that's coming into play? But what I'm, what I'm curious in general is is the trend of, of sex work, how it's been viewed, I guess, the past 20, 20 years. Where, where is, how has it changed? Uh, how has it remained the same? Uh, public's perception, both privately, politically, uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the quick answer I want to give is, of course, like it's become so much more visible um, and so much more mm, accepted by some people in some ways. But that's the thing, you know, there are always these catches. And, you know, looking to history and especially as you note, um, internationally or more globally it's actually kind of startling and i'm not sure how to feel about it but um you know there were workers who have been organizing around it as work and a labor issue for over like a very long time um in the uk uh there were you know bands of sex workers who organized you know as workers um in the late 1800s i believe definitely by the early 1900s in India, um, we have International Day, I think, I believe it's International Day for violence, in, like, to promote awareness about, like, violence against sex workers, but that, um, it's an International Day of Solidarity for us, and it formed because thousands and thousands and thousands of sex workers in India, like, a huge number, they filled a stadium, came out to organize for their rights in the 90s, Um you know, there are these movements going on globally, and it's interesting, it's like at different times in different areas, but again, this understanding of labor and of solidarity. Yeah, and, and um, I noticed you said the uh, archival project. I want to, I was curious how that played out, or what, 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 tell us a little bit more about the archival project, yeah. Sure. Um, so it's like a very... Very quick um, little history as to how it started. I started it in January, and I'm really happy that um, it's been useful for a number of people already. I, you know, I'm always, like, going through different archives or records. I had briefly, I did a year of a program in um, graduate studies in archival science, and I loved it. But I was, like, spending too much time, like, tinkering around, you know, the jobs to actually, like, catalog, and I should, you know... So I like spending time in archives, even if that's like not um, the career for me. But I was finding some materials and like, you know, I guess for the past like 10 years or so, like I'd occasionally share something. Um, and I found one story of a woman. It's the first uh, person who is arrested and tried for being a prostitute and working with HIV. Um, even though we know, you know, there were, of course, other workers who had HIV who'd been arrested for similar things. She was the first in Florida. 
the first one you asked was based in Florida to be arrested for that uh, combination of things. And she you know, had apparently had developmental disabilities, like no more than a middle school education, didn't really understand HIV. Again, this is the late 80s, so there's like huge panic, but not that much information either. And she she just needed to work, so she still saw a couple of clients. No information on as to whether they actually got HIV. That wasn't really um, the point in punishing her. And she went to court, and the judge actually said, like, you are guilty, and, like, you know, it's very shameful about it. And he's like, but God is punishing you by giving you this virus, so, like, we don't need to, like, punish you any further. Like, God already said you're guilty. And... They reported on her a little bit um, more following the case. They didn't just let it go. And, you know, they had a picture of her on her porch. This kind of miserable looking. And the, like, caption even said, you know, here she is waiting to die. And I'd never heard of this woman or this case. I talked to a lot of people and they hadn't either. And just, you know, seeing how the courts and media and everyone kind of ravaged the last days of her life and made them her la- the last days of her life. And we've just like kind of forgotten her. That was terrifying to me. And so I shared it on my personal social media, like, hey guys, <laughs> like here's this like story. And of course it's my personal social media. So it's just like, you know, if you randos who like saw it, like, you know, eight shares or whatever. I'm like, no, we need, we need, I need something a little bit more stable to keep these things on. So it's not just like a passing mm-hmm. Instagram thing for a day. Um, so it's like, all right, I guess I need to, I need to put this somewhere else. And that was the start of it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to like, you know, the history we learn from history and we learn from, you know, keeping track of these things that then in the future we'll learn from it. But also I'm curious about, um, you know, the impact that religion has, the religious views, because you mentioned about God, you know, the judge saying about God, um, you know, what, to what extent do you think, you know, the, what extent do you perceive the, the laws are kind of influenced by the, the religion of the lawmaker and, and how we, how can we, I mean, obviously the country is founded on separation of church and state, but it seems like there's always been, uh, <clears throat> an enmeshing of the two. So how can we fight towards at the very least separating out the the religious kind of charge there um, from the law, mm-hmm. so it's not so charged with that religious judgment, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's a very good question, um, and I think that's something we're still like trying to figure out. How can we mm-hmm. do that? Because with this issue in particular, there are so many people who have animosity toward. Um, either workers or what um, they or we envision as, you know, being necessary and going forward um, would be that uh, I think for a lot of people, even if there are religious influences, they might run so deep that they aren't really, like, known or acknowledged. It's not just, like, evangelicals. It's, um, like, very much, like, centrist um, or liberal feminist parties where, you know, a very wide variety of people who might not even want to admit any kind of tie to these like religious ideologies. It's just like fascinating to me, but also um, 
really complicates the issue for sure. Yeah. So uh, also I want to put out the call number, call number uh, if people want to come in and join the conversation. It's 718-673-8201, the call number. So if you want to come in and join the conversation, please jot, dial in at 718-673-8201. Okay. So I, I guess I'm curious as to um, what are some of your entry points into this, um, this area of work? Uh, is it coming from... Uh, an intellectual curiosity? Is it coming from a, uh, a idea of sexual exploration? Um, what aspects of that are feeding kind of your connection to uh, this area? All of the above, really. I mean, you know, it's kind of the thing where if you're in something long enough, you kind of end up approaching it from like all of the different standpoints, and your right. feelings might change. Like sometimes I'm like, why are we talking about empowerment? And then it's like, well, actually, you know, there is a space for that, right? Um, I think I had my, what I'd call my Joker moment, um, like t- 10 years ago when I just finished undergrad. And, you know, this is still something that I had been thinking of personally. And, you know, having friends who were in tight spots, even if not like the career sex worker. Um, thinking about them and I interned for a uh, state institution against sexual violence and big love to the people there but at the time um, you know I was doing research and making little fact sheets for like palatable information about like violence against different demographics and they already had like a stellar um, set you know, violence against um, like indigenous women, violence against children in these circumstances, violence against whoever, um, just data, like needs, very cut and dry. And I was like, oh, hey, guys, y'all are missing the violence against sex workers fact sheet. And I like got called into a number of different rooms. And like one thing that came up was like, you know, we're funded by Catholic Church and New York police, right? And you know, even if there are ways to go around um, and be much more progressive than you would imagine with those funders, still to be like, police are fucking raping us, didn't really go over well. Or, um, mm, yeah, another person there was like, we are not sure how we feel about um you know should sex work exist so why do we need to talk about the violence against sex workers and it's like well you know i would hope that even if we aren't sure even if we want to abolish work um that we can talk about these problems in the meantime but that wasn't the case um so it's like wow there's really this glaring need of even if you know Feminists and people working against sexual or gender-based violence aren't on this page. Like, we need to get out there and, like, recruit people and do what we can and kind of took off from there. Okay. Um, I want to, I guess, if we continue talking, I guess, a little bit more on kind of the sex sex work um, uh, area of, uh, we can talk a little bit about pornography. Um and kind of how it would differ bef- between, uh, I mean, first, maybe your views, some on pornography and 
the pornography where there is violence being uh, committed within the actual pornography um, that's outside of, you know, these sex workers in the industry they're working in, but within that's depicted and that plays into the fantasy aspect of uh, of the viewer. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, you know, I think it's an interesting question because it's one where it's like that case where one's personal feelings might um, differ from what they think politically. Like I might not like something that doesn't mean I'm like for uh, censorship. I know right now something really controversial is race play, for example. Um, and it's like, well, should should white people in particular even like have any kind of part in that? And that's like not a conversation where I'm going to have a stance, but just like as an example of something mm-hmm. like very, um, you know, even even in our spaces, there isn't a clear consensus. Um but right, as violence depicted, of course, for some people, um, they'll find it empowering. For some people, they definitely won't. Um, that means different things to different people. I am, I do think it, I guess I'm more interested always in like, okay, well, what about the work conditions? Like, it's interesting that people can care about like, you know, could this uh, represent violence, but not really worry about, you know, well, are the workers getting enough to make sure they are in a situation where they have to repeatedly work uh, for a violent director or on a set they don't want to? And it's not that sex work is a problem, but like, you know, they'd like a different uh, environment on the set. So those are the questions I'm more I'm more concerned with. Mm-hmm. Not that media studies isn't important. I think it is, and definitely like very pressing to a lot of people. Um, but I guess I just haven't haven't related to um, the people who are very up in arms and distraught about that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So um, when we think about also one of the questions I think it touches in on kind of how um, like. When your answers to the specific truth acts as a form of your empowerment, that kind of reminds me a little bit of kind of how individuality versus the collective and, and having the power of the individual. If you tell us a little bit about that, like how the question was about how specific truth acts as a way for your empowerment. So that might be a good segue into like individuality versus collective mm-hmm. that you were just discussing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so a lot of times I'm thinking of these questions. So it's, I just struggle to think of um, things as how they relate to on a micro level or even if I don't struggle, I'm like trying to push myself out and thinking of the macro usually um, because I think it's very easy to get like clouded or distracted from the larger issues. Um, So I think that for me, you know, empowerment, empowerment, it's a word I've kind of avoided in many ways, partly because of being in spaces related to um, discourse around sex work for so long that I'm like, there are more important things I need to be thinking about. Um, but no, then thinking about it as something larger than me, um, larger than just like a joy in a moment, but it's like collective empowerment and how... I think we see this discussion flourishing uh, a lot right now with 
um, how mutual aid has become kind of a common term and while some people like sure misusing it or there's still not quite consensus as to what it is um there still are many people living it and kind of chiming in to differentiate it from charity uh thinking about that galliano quote you know about how it's not something top down but more um lateral and remembering that you know Helping others is really helping um, everyone and the community more broadly, which includes yourself. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like the the collective movement um, can only be empowered by through through the individual empowerment. Like, you know, they're very intimately connected. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, you know, when we think about the raising of one individual's rights and one individual's circumstances, then it's really connected thoroughly to that, that classification that they're representative of that whole group of people behind them that it has to do with that. There's no particular individual separate from the whole. I feel like, I feel like that's also what I'm getting is that, that, you know, when we remind ourselves that when we raise up one person, raising all the people who are in similar circumstances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So specifically in regards to, uh, but in regards to all all things, the workers and and collective bargaining and all this kind of thing, and and unions stuff like that, and and all the different aspects of that fight for um, workers' rights, yeah, right. Um, I guess uh, what are some other I guess issues, uh, either even feminist causes too that that have uh, piqued your curiosity and that you. Um, even other communities that you might be a part of. I know you're a writer as well, poetry-wise. Um, can you speak of some of your connection to some of these other issues and some other um, uh, communities? Sure. Um, well, this really brought me um, to labor rights more broadly um, a while back and thinking it just raises this question of, well, like, what is labor and what does it mean to try buying to... Uh, defines something as labor or one's status as labor and how that's been a historic struggle not just for sex workers but for other informal laborers especially in the care economy so I'm very fortunate to be studying under uh, labor feminist labor historian Eileen Boris who does a lot and has done a lot on like domestic work um, homework and other forms of care work that, um, you know, in some, especially like some like traditional Marxist spaces, even where you would think we'd be all about like worker solidarity, people will be like, well, that's not real work, or what is the surplus value? And like going into all of these questions and also looking at like how that relates to um, labor history. Um, as well, and that if one is working in these informal economies, do they have the same historical record or place in the archive, you know, especially without like the backing of a trade union, which is how we get a lot of these records? Probably not. Um, so there are some movements right now that, you know, are in solidarity with sex workers, I feel. Um, Red Canary Song, they are uh, an organization here in New York. They do a lot of work uh, related to 
for for with and for and of um, Asian and Asian American sex workers, and you know they've been in solidarity with and vice versa with um, nail salon workers, for example, or people working outdoor carts um, who've been brutalized by NYPD. And it comes down to the question of like, well, who has access to public space in the commons and to be a laborer in the public? Um, taxi workers right now are organizing gig workers. So, you know, there, there's so much room there, I think, for collectivity. And we're seeing it more than we used to. Um, I am very heartened by a lot of it. I am also like aware of the history of like, well, you know, and if people want to get ahead and get more mainstream approval, they might try distancing things themselves from the more like scandalous um, worker. But yeah, so that's one movement for sure. Um, you know, and violence against women as well. As I mentioned, you know, that's kind of how I got started a bit um but yeah i just feel like the more you are in a space you see how it becomes like an issue it relates to like pretty much every issue or every ism and how you can combat that or address that thank you <clears throat> so just remind my listeners this is a bit heading towards the halfway mark and this is the truth to power showing radio for brooklyn we're here with Cole scott raven and special guest stephanie kaler uh, we're talking about labor and sex right workers, sex workers' rights. Um, and also, uh, I want to put a call out for any listeners to call in and join the conversation. The number again is 718 That's 718-673-8201. You can call in and then join the conversation, ask a few questions to Stephanie or ourselves. Um, so also, I want to talk a little bit about your writing. As we as we hit to the halfway point, um, tell us a little bit about some of the themes you're writing, how it connects to your um, general, uh, yeah, your general dissertation or your work, the work, or is there any connection? Uh, let us know. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, so for a long time, I didn't have much of a connection. I felt between you know my work going into like movement spaces or organizing and then my poetry I felt um, like my poetry was more lyrical and you know more about things like distance or absence that of course are inherently political like as I've said I think everything is political um but to draw a clear line between the two I felt would be a little bit contrived um, but I have, you know, in more recent years, I have been linking the two partly out of a frustration and a feeling of, you know, not really having many other outlets that could be as effective. Um, so one project I've been working on, um, it's looking at the interview actually and how sex workers are often kind of interrogated with the same basic questions and you know as I've said earlier like there are these like traditional questions like do you like it and how did you get started and like sure you know you can talk about it but a lot of times it's not really what we want to talk about um and further 
it's it tends to be very baited. Like people, you can tell pretty quickly that people want you to answer one way or another to talk about how like how horrible things are or how empowering. And a lot of times, you kind of want to make your own way through those distinctions and show how it actually isn't that clear cut. Um, so I found that the interview in some in some places can be more exploitative of sex workers' voices than whatever exploitation they're trying to tap into and like really, you know, be voyeurs of. So I started I started a poem series, um, kind of trying to take back the interview um, and relic it and know what would I what would I say and making making sense of that. And I have um, two poems I can read from this series. The first one, um, it was published in Hobart Pulp earlier this year. Not my appreciation to Dorothy Chan. It's, um, it's the introduction, the big question, how did you get started in this work? In this story, I am meant to tell you of the men I met in parking lots. It is night, and it will be raining, though I do not know the science behind the smell of it, though I do not know how I could discern the sweat-stained shirt color in this dark. In this story, I am meant to tell you that I became empowered by my boundaries, but I learned to say enough yeses until my tongue could no longer trace memories of the hollowness of no. In this story, I am meant to. In this story, in this story, I am you. In this chokehold, in this chiffon, in this Cadillac, in this camera, in this denim, in this daydream, in this truck stop, in this treasure, in this story, I am you, hopping in a stranger's car, telling him where to go. And a following poem, not published anywhere, uh, Do You Regret It? Somewhere there is a lineup at this very moment, yes, even at this hour, Steak and eggs, coffee and head, a man once said when I asked him, why so early? Somewhere there is this lineup. A woman will be picked, or she will not. These days in the desert, the man comes so rarely that the 12-hour shifts turn into always being on call. Days rolling into one another like the barren plains. Wild horses spoken of more often than seen. Somewhere they are trying, helping one another out of bed when the bell rings. Someone is always sleeping, but still she rises. It will never be the right choice. Too tired to work, haven't gotten enough work, 
should have left last week, should have come in early, should be working solo again, should have pinned my hair up, should have bought another pack of cigarettes, should have tried harder with, should be going home to, should try harder to forget the, should get another coffee, ashamed to be unfazed by the smell of broiling meat. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Yeah, quite. I love that series that it's uh, tackling. Yeah, kind of the interview. Uh, how meta. How we're we're in one right now, of course. But I'm just thinking of just the structuring of an interview of how yeah. the inherent power dynamic of the asker and the and the listener uh, and my ability to 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 interrupt at any time too. Whereas when you are in control of a poem, yeah, it's your floor and you're sharing uh, <laughs> what what it is um, and. Yeah, I would flip the the question on you. And is there a question that you would ask yourself about uh, uh, sex workers, about the sex workers' rights um, that inherent that you could answer, but that you would ask even yourself, as opposed to the questions that other people ask? Yeah, that's a. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I think it would be important to ask myself, like, do you, do you have hope and like, you know, what's next? And to remind, to, to ask yourself first, I guess, before you remind yourself, mm -hmm. like, you know, what is the point of this and what is the point of, um, organizing or consciousness raising more generally, um, because sometimes it can be easy to get lost and kind of forget that. And I think that's something that anyone can stand to, mm. you know, mm. ask very often. Yeah, yeah. And also I want to ask you about, um, the, it says here in, in the longer bio mm -hmm. that you worked in the um, anthology film archives and processing the, the papers. Tell us a little bit about the, the film archives aspect uh, if that was something you worked on previously and, and tell us a little bit about that. Um, that also about the, um, special collections at, um, Brandon, Brandon's University in 2016, Yeah. That, that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the film archives, that was just like a brief thing when I was in my early twenties. I didn't, didn't do, um, too, too much there, but I did, um, <laughs> uh, get to work with this, much older film historian. He was one of the people there when anthology started. And it was just beautiful to go in the basement with him at times and just like flip through the old papers mm -hmm. um, and see how there is so much um, like textuality and change between artists of different genres like I went down there and there would be like a photograph of Anais Nin a writer who I adore because she worked a lot with Maya Darren and John Lennon was one of the people who really funded anthology um a lot of musicians to this day still do and yeah just seeing that like relation and thinking about um how I forget who, but some of the surrealists back, back, back in the day had so much hope in film because they thought it would do what poetry was supposed to do, mm. um, in terms of 
it's risking the narrative and you know going away from the narrative structure that becomes so hegemonic and really you know showing the dream what that means and you know uh being more being more honest and how and truthful and replicating how how we really perceive and process things which isn't usually like that very neat clean arc um as we know like Hollywood and other forms of film, like of course they ended up going going the other route anyway. But still, that hope that um, filmmakers today still carry and show, despite what others are doing, is something really beautiful. And while I have no background in filmmaking myself, um, to just be near it and in proximity is something invaluable to me. I think one of the best parts of that internship was free free tickets and plus one, so I could <laughs> oh, yeah. just see all the new movies, all the old movies. Right, right. And, well, I mean, I love that that just the intro you just gave there, where you described the experience of working at this film archive without really mentioning the films themselves. It was the experience of being around the filmmakers and mm-hmm. being, you know, kind of, and how you approach kind of these other things, the historian uh, aspect of it. And yeah, that's a whole other world that not everybody gets to kind of see. And just, yeah, the, like you said, the interconnectedness between those filmmakers, I, I really, I really like. Um, it's kind of like a surrealist approach to it in general. Um, if we can just then talk maybe about a couple of the films, though, that might have spoke to you during that that period that uh, that piqued your interest, that you, that you got something that, that had a lasting impact uh, on you. Mm. So as I noted, um, I went through my Buniel phase, and he's still, um, it's very important to me, but one particular film would be uh, That Obscure Object of Desire. And apparently when, um, you know, it first came out, a lot of people couldn't tell there were two actresses playing the lead. Which is just fascinating to me. And, I, you know, I went in with the knowledge that there were two actresses and it seemed a little bit more obvious to me. But just, um, I think that's such a like quintessential surrealist and Buñuel kind of move to make. And again, how it um, just was more honest, like in kind of creating a lie, you know, two women as one, you're actually making something much more honest um, and closer to a personal truth. And this woman, not only was she played by two actresses, um, you know, she's like the object of this man's pursuit the entire time. And they come close to consummating love. And like, she's the one who gets away. And she, she has to have so many different like jobs and circumstances too. Um, so she, I'm like making up the specifics, but like, you know, she could be a waitress mm-hmm. and then she's a like nanny or teacher. Or mm. like, like you know, just working these different things, um, but it doesn't really matter, like the specific details, um, because she's like in his mind, just like you know, the object of desire. Um, so yeah, beautiful, beautiful film. Right. So there weren't two separate um, representations. Each one didn't represent two different things, but they just represented just one of many possible objects of his desire. Right. right. Yeah. And then uh, I remember there was some sort of like dousing in water during that too, right? Mm. Or, or like the, on the train, they dumped the water. 
I don't know, was that was a baptism yeah. connection or just some <laughs> sort of just shocking to, to, to wake up to a desire and, and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. I believe that was the opening and closing. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alerts. No. Uh, <laughs> way past the time. Yeah. Um, and then there was a, wasn't it like a dwarf uh, doctor, a dwarf psych- psychologist, was it within it? Mm-hmm. On the train along with him talking about that woman. Right. And yeah, there's, I feel like in so many of these films, there's always like the psychologist on board. With yeah. Kind of mm-hmm. like it's a like, Greek chorus or something, you know, like yeah. overlooking. Um, but yes, yes beautiful film and i know it's been so long since i've watched it but if i watched it again i'm sure i'd find like things i hadn't seen the previous time right right just have it done you've seen any boonwell uh vj yeah i think i saw the one where they're um trying to get dinner yeah and and they keep getting delayed and and Uh, someone tells uh, a dream or yes uh, yes. i feel the name of it but uh the the discreet charm discreet charm Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. that's right yeah yeah that was really interesting. It was interesting how uh, they kept kind of get, diverting into like dream telling or some kind of drug uh, fantasy, and they kept and going to happened. the next place. And they never got beat. Yeah, that was, <laughs> I think the conceit of the movie. Yeah, very interesting. And um, the eye one, the, the is that also banal? So that's it? the first surrealist. First surrealist. Maybe film, that's yeah. big enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, Dali. Oh, it's Dali. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Right, right. Yeah, I don't remember, but I remember I saw it at some point. <laughs> uh, but I don't remember what it was about. Uh, I mean, it was pretty much a close up <laughs> of a razor to the to the eye. Oh, was that? Yeah. 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 Um, and then, yeah, there was some. Was it Dali? And then there was, yes, yeah, some other thing. I've been a fan of uh, Alejandro Hodorowski a lot. You mentioned the Lenin connection. And, um, well, there was, you know, some some controversy over some of his uh, his films as of late. I don't know if you were familiar with uh, El Topo, um, and uh, yeah, they were going to do a whole, I believe, um, retrospective in New York, and then there was, uh, you know, a possibility that there was a real rape that occurred in the uh, in the scene, and mm-hmm. he had claimed that in early uh, early press. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with any of this, no. and. Uh, been a huge, huge fan of his, and and you know some interviews you'll see that he's uh, he's shared kind of that it was uh, he was saying it kind of for effect, you know, mm. but but it was consensual within the filmmakers, but it was happening, you know, with the actress and with that. In any event, he his 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 um his approach to filmmaking a lot of the time is he wants the actor or the actress to go through something while they're part of the film and um that that they're coming to some sort of new realization or or kind of new uh through the the filmmaking process um draws a line between fantasy and reality and i don't know if you had any feelings on 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 that of of being part of an art thing uh, i know with poetry sometimes that happens you know you come to some sort of realization when you're writing something uh by the end uh film film that does as well but um, speaking to maybe the mental health aspects of creation and how that kind of plays into your uh, your practices as, as as an artist, as a historian, and that sort of thing. Right. Um, yeah, that's tricky. I, I hadn't been familiar with that. I guess um, uh, it's 
hard. It's, you know, as an artist, I can understand, you know, like, even hurting yourself to make art, as cliche as that sounds, you know, it, it just, so many people will do that, whether it's staying up very late and, like, really sitting with your sorrow in a way that may not be ultimately as healthy as other options could be. Um, but I, you know, when it comes to actively hurting others and then, you know, the consent issue, I think then it becomes a little bit more apparent that, I don't know, maybe you're just not that talented if you have to do that to make art. I, yeah. you know, that's like my shady answer. I know. <laughs> like, right. I don't know. That, yeah. yeah. Without being privy to the actual conversation that's happening right, on set right. with the people involved, like yeah. who, who knows? Um, and then, because I, I was thinking of the films um, that depict real sex on screen too, that aren't pornographic. Mm-hmm. That those films that happen, does that need to happen to depict a kind of sexual act on on a film? Um, does that make it more real for the viewer or for the person seeing it? Or you know, or um, yeah, what what does that necessarily achieve? I think *Nymphomaniac* might have done it, and um, a couple other couple other movies that have that have uh, heard of through the through the past. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know, I think it comes down also to like what the actors and what they need in their process, because right. for some, that is like even if it's just like a different way of like creating this internal narrative of like, is this me? Is this who I'm pretending? You know, that can make all of the difference and um, not being privy to much more than that. I, you know, I, I would trust, you know, what I, what I heard about that um, form of production, but it is hard for me to like try making up clear, clear, like firm beliefs or stances without Uh. much information. Yeah, I'd be curious about when it comes to like um, these laws about around these kinds of things, around these issues, around protecting the consent and protecting, um, you know, the rights of the of the actors, the rights of the workers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what kinds of ways in which, like, how are these laws formed? I know that there's one thing that says you were part of a steering committee of a human rights subcommittee. So mm-hmm. would would like these subcommittees have influence over? The kind of laws, or I'm, I'm honestly curious if, like, they have like subcommittees or things like that that help direct some of these laws. I'm not really sure because you know, the, back in the day, they always had that. Uh, they had that. How does bill become a law? Kind of a video, <laughs> but now of course it's much more complicated than that. You know, it's <laughs> right. like there's all sorts of ways in which money influences uh, law as well, and what gets proposed on the floor. But there must be some subcommittees or something like that that help generate some of these bills you think or i don't know you probably have more information yeah absolutely so the um referencing wasn't wasn't quite related to legislation um however i think the first thing that one can look at in um like looking to advocacy groups in particular is seeing like who's involved um, it's for example, one came up in Nevada like a month ago, like, you know, it's like some group or pack for sex workers rights. And it sounds really great. Like another group for sex workers rights. It turned out to be started by like a very violent, abusive client. 
And if you like read more, he's like, we need to organize because these women are charging too much. Oh, God. <laughs> like, really? But sometimes it isn't like that apparent, right? Sometimes it could just be like a manager or something who's, for some reason, in like these spaces, like managers are taken at their word a little bit more than like a manager in at CUNY or something. Like we wouldn't let admin there like run the union, but. With sex work, yeah, that happens. Um, but yeah, just looking, um, seeing who who's involved. Um, is this something that community members seem happy with? Or like, of course, the question of who's a community member gets tricky too. But like, is it just like outsiders who are lifting this up or not? Um, unfortunately, a lot of times the ones that get the most money are, like for anything, um, are created by people with, like less at stake or who are more willing to sell out um, further marginalized people or workers. Um, And we see them getting more press to more um, credit for things that have been like undergoing for a long time. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's always like my first inclination. And if someone like, if it's a group or something that doesn't have a list of like who's involved, that's like the big red flag too. Interesting. Yeah. So I just want my listeners are about 10 minutes out for the end. This is Ready for Brooklyn, uh, the Truth to Power show. Um, we're here with a call of Scott Raven and special guest Stephanie Kaler. Um, you're listening to Ready for Brooklyn, independent listener supported radio. Ready for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on air. It allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one time donation at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. If you're an Amazon shopper, you like donating in a way that costs you nothing, then go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash Amazon and register Ready for Brooklyn as your Amazon Smile Charity. Every time you shop, a portion of your purchase will go to benefit Radio for Brooklyn. And if you're listening when you're in front of your computer, you can free yourself up by downloading the apps for iPhone or Android. Develop the app store for App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. And finally, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for latest news about new pro- new programming, upcoming RFP events. We can you can sign up at RadioForBrooklyn.org/newsletter. Okay, great, great. So I got some of the announcements out of the way and, um, we have about like eight or nine minutes left. So, um, yeah, what else is coming up for you as far as like, um, how we can tie things together for the listeners? Uh, you know, how, what, what, what are some of the call to actions perhaps that we can do? If there's any, if there's any, um, you know, and, and, um, what are some like takeaway, what are some takeaway points that we want to leave the listeners with? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I am not too familiar. I'm not involved with this, but I just kind of want to plug the Worker Writers School. Um, I've been wanting to check them out for a bit, but they apparently have weekly writing sh- workshops uh, with worker centers and trade unions, and they're based here in New York. Um, so that's yeah, like kind of like on my to like read more about mm. the list. Um, currently, um, sex workers' rights in New York. You know, I mentioned Red Canary Song. There is also Swap Brooklyn. 
Um, Sex First Outreach Project is a national org. They um, have chap- local chapters across the country. And here in Swap LA, it's amazing to, um, you know, there are different approaches. So there will be information on uh, legislation, both locally and nationally, uh, ways that people can get involved regarding that, and lots of more like street outreach. Um, and they can always use funding for street outreach, whether that's you know giving hot meals to people or whatever else. Um, and then information and support for workers themselves too, and. Protean Mag, um, they are a leftist magazine that paves. Um, so giving them a plug, you can find some of my work there. And there, there are just so many more I could keep like going through and finding, but I'm just very heartened. Um, I feel it's like we're in a moment of, you know, increasing class consciousness and workers organizing. And, you know, while we might not be anywhere, um, close to where we need to be um like i i've i've noticed that you know many labor scholars and reporters are saying like don't say we're like close to a general strike because we aren't we have a lot of work to do um there is just so much and to see like labor not be some like kind of weird niche um topic but something that many, many people are bringing up every day and there's news on every day. Um, I think that's wonderful and reflected in poetry now too with more of these like leftist journals and for labor specifically. Um, so I'm really, I'm really excited to be um, contributing myself right now too. Mm. Wonderful. Um, and then maybe a couple other places we can find some of your poetry. Um, you mentioned one of the journals, but a couple other spots. And do you have any plans to put together maybe an, an, another collection of just your own work uh, coming up as well? Yes. Um, so some of the work, um, as mentioned, Hope Art and Protean, uh, Beastong, I have work coming out there shortly. Uh, I've had work in Bedfellows Magazine, um, if you go to my Twitter, you can, I don't have a website right now either, but you, I, um, have shared some of my work there, website soon, and actually wrapping up this interview series into a manuscript, so this is also my way of plugging myself. Yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah, good, good. And maybe we can end with, um... Just reflections on the the two major uh, mo- uh, mottos of the show. They're talking about how the personal is political, and how you know speak and speaking or, or establishing truth into power. Truth speaking truth to power. We kind of define it more like kind of transforming truth into power. Mm-hmm. Um, and how your know, reflections on that as we start to close. I think that's beautiful. Yes. Um, well. Like I mentioned, and I'll say again, I think like everything is political. Um, again, that's not to say like good or bad, but like just constantly thinking of how political structures and politics inform, um, you know, even small or simple or everyday. And truth to power, I think, you know, just um, 
I think there's so much to be said about consciousness raising. And, you know, again, I think we're in a moment where more and more people are taking risk and kind of putting themselves on the line um, to say that, like, you know, this is not okay or we deserve better and we can dream bigger and the risk in that and um, how it looks like we're building even, like, greater collectives right now. And I'm really heartened by that. Thank you, thank you. So this is a production of the Truth to Power show. Thank you so much for listening. We've been airing since um, 2017, so we'll be, we'll be um, heading towards a 200th episode Woo-hoo. on December 12th. Um, it's going to be a special episode uh, with uh, Dr. Rick Giroux, Professor Rick Giroux, uh, PhD. So I hope you all listen in to the December 12th episode as well as the uh, subsequent few episodes leading up to that one. Uh, we have many interesting and amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks. Um, you can also listen to our archives at radiofromthedark.org slash truth to power and listen to the past, binge listen to a lot of our older episodes. Um, yeah, thank you so much. So any final thoughts, Scott? No, I mean, just want to piggyback off that, you know, keeping the dialogue on any issue that we address uh, within the show, any topic whatsoever. Um, whether you call in during the show, you know, we're also, uh, you know, via Facebook, you know, kind of keep that kind of message board uh, kind of open. Um, I wanted to definitely thank Stephanie for coming on, sharing her views or thoughts today. Um, yeah, it's a great conversation and, and hopefully uh, looking forward to, to more for, for sure. Yeah, thanks so much, Stephanie. And uh, and people want to check us out, facebook.com slash truth to power. You can like our page and then give some feedback, give some talk back on there, or you can find our individual uh, Facebook pages and posts, definitely feel free to reach out at truth the power show at gmail.com as well. So there's many different ways that you can reach out and talk back or tell us a little bit about your experience of the show. Or tell us about your experience of the various topics, your favorite episode, anything like that. Thank you so much. All right, guys, we'll head out then. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs>